Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have an old client of mine. I say old, he's not that old. He's younger than me. Alex Mosco, founder, MD of 9mm Public Relations. He's a specialist in corporate B2B communications. Fabulous chap. The man who taught me how to get into someone else's story and speak with their voice. Alex, delighted to have you on today. Thank you. Hi, Marcus. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Excellent. Can you give a minute background on how you got to where you are? So I've been in corporate communication. I've been in corporate <laughs> professional communication. Now that's staying in. There's no way we're taking that. Out. You know, what am I struggling with at the moment? Speaking. <laughs> so let's try that again. Marcus, I've been in corporate communications for 20 years. I guess throughout my career, there's been one thing that's really stood out, and that's that I was always teamed up. I was the guy that was teamed up with the CEOs and the senior teams of uh, my clients, and it was my job to raise their, their media profile. And, and typically what that meant was sitting down and exploring what they knew, because in, in PR, you can't sell overtly, right? So you're, you're, what you're doing is you're helping the media come up with content that they can uh, communicate to their audience. And therefore, it's got to be valuable. So my job was always working with them to understand what it is that they knew that their market would find of interest, and then packaging that up and pitching it to the media and creating stories and writing opinion and that kind of thing. And I became a, a specialist in that. And what I found was that with smaller brands and so with our smaller clients, this was a while ago. So this is when the media was a very dominant force and very much the only platform from which companies could speak to a, a broadcast audience. It wasn't necessarily as easy to do for smaller brands because the media, you know, when you're when you're working with, say, the CEO of, of Samsung, it's kind of easy. You phone up the FT and you kind of say, you know, would you like to have a chat with my client? And as long as you've got something of interest to talk about, then they're not really going to say no. But when you're a smaller brand, you don't have that brand power, then it can be harder. But what I found was that no matter who you are, if you've been doing what you've been doing for some time then you typically have this all this incredible insight that you're a lot of the time you're not using. You might think that everybody has that insight, which which I find with a lot of experts actually. They think that people know what they know, so they're not going to find what they have to say of interest. So what I've done in my career and what, what I've been working on is developing a process whereby I can help somebody explore what they know and explore it through the lens of who it is that they want to connect with to motivate to kind of persuade and influence and then package that stuff up and use it to engage and attract the people into their business and and initially a lot of that work was done through the media but now obviously with the internet and with all the different social platforms it's much more democratized so there's much more opportunity and as long as you have something of value to say, and you can package it in a way that people will will, will want to uh, consume it, then you can make a really big impact. And so that's what we do. Very interesting. So, Alex, let's start off with the, what are the four most common questions CEOs, founders, MDs come to you and ask? So, very good question. We typically help the owners of service-led B2B organizations, and there's normally quite a strong consultancy layer to what they do. So people like 
software companies, recruitment consultancies, business consultancies, that kind of stuff. And typically, they're brilliant to what they do, and they're doing brilliant work, but they're, they're struggling to make an impact on their market, right? So the question that comes, the questions that come up a lot, how do we differentiate, right? Mm-hmm. So the belief is that they don't look different enough to be visible. How do we make ourselves a priority purchase? That typically is because they're going into a meeting, they're having a good meeting, but somebody's saying to them, well, I love what you're selling, but it's not right for us right now. Uh, We've got other things that are more of a priority. Third question would be, how do we penetrate the noise, right? So the belief is that there's so much noise out there, and the reason that they're not penetrating it is because there's too much. So how can they be heard amongst all their competition? And, and, and of course, uh, the usual is, uh, how do we get the media's attention? Because the belief is that you get coverage in the media and all your Christmases will come at once and uh, the business will just start blooming overnight, right? Those would be the four questions that we, we get asked the most. So to build on that, you don't differentiate in what you do, you differentiate in how you do it. You don't differentiate in what you sell, but how you sell it. And I think one of the really important things that business owners and leaders need to understand is there's probably a fag paper difference between you and the next organization if you're in a relatively mature market. And it's not your job to sell your products or your services. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want? I want a shiny carbungulator. It just doesn't happen. There's a reason behind it. And I think one of the reasons why PR is so incredibly powerful, if it's done well, and I qualify that by if it's done well, is we are creatures of story. For the last quarter of a million years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling stories about the great emu in the sky and all sorts of myths and legends. And we, we buy into story. We're programmed for it. And I think so often we forget that our prospects and our customers are not thinking about us. When we teach people how to sell, our focus is on finding people who think they are well and then finding a little bit of hurt and you scratch the scab and move them from a little bit of hurt to sick and then scratch a bit more and have the blood gushing and the guts on the floor so that you move them from well to hurt to sick to critical. And then you leave them there for a while And then you offer a glimmer of hope. But I think one of the things that has fascinated me about watching the kind of uh, wasted content on LinkedIn and in social and in the media is so much of it seems to miss the mark because it's selfish. The story isn't about the hero as it should be. It's about the Sherpa. Now, that's what you should be talking about your clients as the hero about the impact that you have on your client. But too often, ego gets in the way. And I'm really curious about how you control your client's egos to get them out of their own way. And one of my favorite Sander rules is if your foot is hurting, you're probably standing on your own toe. And I suspect in your line of work, there are many of your prospects and clients who insist on stamping very hard on their own toe and complaining that it hurts. So it's very interesting. So I was with a group of 30 business owners yesterday running a workshop around all of these things that you've just been talking about. And and of course, the thing that they're always focusing is, is on what they do. But of course, nobody buys what we do. Nobody cares what we do. 
you know, and in, and in the same way that we bring a certain amount of ego to that, our customers and our potential customers, our prospects, they are bringing ego to it as well, that all they care about is themselves. And so really, that's all a business should care about is that is, is understanding who that they, they want to attract and understanding what it is that's going to attract them, right? So you talked about story and you know, we are storytellers in PR and we do it using different devices, but essentially all we're doing is telling story. And if we're doing our job well, then we're not telling our client's story, we're in fact telling their client's story. And I, and I once sat down with a, a brilliant psychologist, Simon Moore, and he was saying, you know, you're absolutely right, Marcus, you know, stories are have been in our history and it's the way that information has been passed on. But it's also in the present, when you think about it, from the year dot, that is how we are taught our stories you know we tell our children's stories that's how we pass information on to them and so story is something that we learn to understand and it's and also because of the way that narrative is set up and I think this is something that a lot of people miss because of the way that narrative is set up it's very easy to consume it's also very easy to digest so if I'm telling you a story about somebody that I've helped and what their problem was and where I've taken them and the value that's been created. You can take that story and you can tell it to somebody else, right? Because you can, you can, you can assimilate that information much, much easier than if I gave you a list of features and benefits of a service that I'm offering that you're, it's going to bore you anyway and you're going to forget a minute after we finish speaking. But I tell you a good story and you're, you're going to pass that on to somebody else. Now, the story captures attention. Yes. It's got a, a structure that is easy to consume. It's got the beginning, the middle, and the end. You started off with a bang. You grab somebody's attention, right? You create tension throughout the middle to get people thinking what's going to happen. And then at the end, you give them the big reveal, right? And that's the thing that people remember. And if you're telling a story, though, that's the structure you need to think about, right, in order to get people interested. So you were talking about wasted content on LinkedIn and there was some research done. It's a couple of years old now, but I, I imagine it had not, not Nothing much. Nothing will have changed. Right. But 95% of content gets little to no engagement, right? So that's the vast majority of content, which means that 95%, if not more, of people, marketers, my, my kind of people, but businesses in general, they're wasting all that time and energy is being wasted on stuff that doesn't matter. And actually, what that also means is that anybody that's saying there's too much noise to penetrate, they're kind of wrong because most of what is out there is being ignored. So if you can come up with something that's engaging, more than likely you're going to penetrate the noise. You're going to push through because so much of it is disregarded, right? So what, what do we do about that? How do, we, how do we help people to communicate better? And I think... The first thing that we do, I mean, we go in and we look to understand our clients' businesses because it's important to understand what, what it is that they're offering. But then we kind of think, okay, well, we've done that now. We've got that information. We've got that knowledge. The more important side of it is that we then, and we're in a rather privileged position, we go and speak to their clients. We do the one thing that most companies don't do, which is actually talk to the people that they've helped. Absolutely. Fantastic point. And what we're doing in that, and it's typically in the to do a case study to write the sto- the, the story of of the relationship. But even if it's not, the, the first thing to do is, you know, I would 
urge any business to go and speak to their customers on a regular basis, especially when you're doing good work for that business. Because well, they're going to tell you some really important things that you're not thinking about, right? So they're going to tell you what they bought, right? Not what you sold them. Yeah. Or you've and why they bought it. Right. And why they bought it. So they're going to tell you what they bought and why they bought it. And they're also going to tell you what triggered the kind of the purchase cycle, right? What was the problem in the business that needed to be solved? that triggered them looking for a service like yours. They're going to tell you also, if you ask the right question, why they disqualified your competition, right? Because they're going to have looked at a few different uh, companies and they'll have chosen you. So you're going to find out what your real differentiator is, which is what it is that your customer bought and why they bought you and not anybody else. They'll tell you a couple of things which are really, really important, right? First of all, they'll tell you the result that you generated for them, which is key because it shows your ability and what you're able to do. But then they'll tell you something that nobody measures or very few people measure, and that's the impact that you had. Right. So something that I remember very clearly from the work that we did together, there's lots of stuff that I, I use from, from our time working together. But one thing that I always remember is this, and that is that Every business has an, a problem and, and there's a, their vision and objective that they want to get to. And what we need to do as salespeople and marketers is understand what the pain gap is, right? What are the things getting in the way of them getting from where they are today to where they want to be? And what the impact tells you is how far you've taken them. So the results are important, but what's really important is what those results meant to the people that you helped, right? As individuals, personally. Personally and commercially. So you want to know the commercial benefit because the commercial benefit's important because sometimes, and a lot of the time, you're selling to somebody who's selling you to a business. But when you're working with a business owner, quite anybody really, the personal impact is so important as well because that's why they are going to choose you. That is what they are essentially buying. They are buying for two reasons. As you, you've always said to me, you know, they're either trying to get away from or towards a goal, right? So they're either trying to get away from something painful or towards something that they want. And, and typically it's both things. So really what the impact tells you is how far did you get them from where they are today to where they want to be? And that's the true measure of the success of the relationship is how much momentum did you give them? You know, what did that mean to them in terms of their, their big hairy ass vision, their goals, their objectives? Absolutely. This then taps into one other thing that I'd like to build on that which is the importance of emotion. If the emotion centers in the brain are damaged, people cannot make decisions because they are adjacent to one another. And um, you know, if the emotion centers of the brain are damaged, you can't decide whether to wear the blue or the white shirt, whether to have crispy chili beef or pork chow mein. And all decisions, 100%, zero exceptions, are emotional. People buy emotionally and they justify intellectually. And this is, again, why the power of story and personal emotional impact is so key in your storytelling. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll notice that I've tapped into what seems to be quite a strong vein because virtually every post that I generate now results in an inbound inquiry. So they're all the vanity metrics which marketing tends to get excited about. Views, likes, shares, comments, that kind of thing. But 
what really matters is what Al Tepper calls buzz, which is the subsurface communication. It's when someone comments through a direct message out of the glare of the spotlight in the public view and say, just read your piece. It's like you're a fly on the wall. Let's talk. Because that's the purpose of this stuff. And therein lies the difference between marketing and social selling. Social selling is done one-to-one. When I write my content, I'm writing for an individual or a very clearly defined avatar who has a very specific problem. And I want to enter the conversation they are already having. If I do that, there is zero resistance. If I try and convince them, then they're going to put up all sorts of barriers or they're going to say, that's not me. But if I enter the world that they already occupy, I enter the conversations they're already having. And I think this is what great PR does, is it allows the reader or the listener to say, ah, that's me. So what I'm curious about is this. What are the three major questions that prospects in PR, uh, in your world, should be asking you, but they're not? They should be asking me. Is, but it, so there's a good question. And, and, and actually, it's probably a tougher question than, you know, what are the, the four questions that they always ask me? But so I've been thinking about this. And I think the first question is, who is our audience really? And what do they need? Absolutely. Right? Okay. Because it's the two things that they're not doing. Um, let, let me just make a point at this uh, stage. Not everyone is your customer. Not okay. everyone qualifies to even be your prospect. Uh, And what you say no to matters more than what you say yes to. If you try and please everyone, you please no one. And certainly from my own experience, but also Jay McBain, the lead analyst for Forrester at our Sandra Summit last year, when he gave his keynote speech, he said that it was companies that were niching really tightly that were experiencing the fastest growth. So it's no longer good enough to be the managed service provider to healthcare. You now need to be the managed service provider to uh, ambulatory um, clinics, where walk-in clinics, where there are 50 doctors or less based in Southeast Chicago, that kind of niching. And when you're creating your story, really focus and sacrifice the majority for the few, because those few are your potential customers. And to pick up on Alex's point earlier, When you speak to your customer's customer, they will tell you not only how to sell to people just like them, but they will also feed you the information that you need in order to retain those customers. And that's really key because there's no point getting stuff in through the front door to let most of it go out through the back door. When you consider what it costs you to acquire one new client in terms of the hidden cost of marketing, lead acquisition, sales, and pursuit... And you look at terrible conversion rates, you know, one in five at final stage where you have a five-step sales process over a six-month period. And you could rack up 40, 50, 80 grand on one pursuit. And you have to go through five of them in order to make a £100,000 revenue. Then you've got to ask yourself the question, well, of course you're not making any bloody profit. Anyway, sorry, question number two. (laughs) Well, actually, I want to pick up on a few things that you just said, right? So... So I've been working on a process around niching uh, for like ever since I've been going right. So the last twenty years, this thing has been coalescing around it because you know the, I call it the sales sweet spot. And people say, well, why 
you know, you're a marketer. Why do you why are you talking about sales? And that's this is actually something that, and I'm <laughs> I'm hoping that I'm getting this right because I'm pretty. You know, I remember you saying this to me, so I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting it right. But actually, you know, a business is there to go to the bank. It's there to to make sales, and everything else should Absolutely. really. So marketing is a subset of sales. Really, no, didn't no. like it. Sales is a subset of marketing. Right. Is it? Yeah, it absolutely. Anything that touches the customer right. is marketing. But marketing tends to be one to many. And sales is where you start narrowing the focus, narrow, 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 focus, 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 down to the individuals. And increasingly, what we're seeing is that in complex sales, enterprise sales now has 9.2 decision makers on average. Right. Now, you have to target your messaging to each of those individuals. So you've got the generic stuff, which creates the initial momentum. But it's really about pinpointing and bringing it right back down to the individual drivers for each person at an emotional and uh, personal impact level. uh, So that when you do finally get them all together to do your final presentation, and let me make this point. A presentation, a proposal, a quote, a demo is for the kill. It's not part of the sales process. It's confirming the order. On proposals, if you have less than a 100% close rate, you are fucking it up. Okay? So, sorry. So, I completely, 100% agree with you. So, the process is kind of a sales sweet spot process. Now, a company can have more than one sweet spot, but it's really about helping them to become more niche, to look at specific people that they sell to. People still believe that they sell to companies, that they sell to, we sell to this sector or to to this industry or this kind of company. And of course you don't, you're always selling to a, a person. And actually last year we were doing a really fantastic project with a, with an incredible IT recruitment agency. And they are so super niche. So they do they basically airdrop very high-level consultants into massive digital transformation and big data projects, right? And they do 95% of their work in Europe, right? So really, really niche. And they're, they're 10 years old. They turn, I think turnover is like 40, 50 million. It's absolutely massive. So this idea that you are going to lose out on business because you're getting too niche is for, for the birds. It's absolutely not true. There's a huge yeah. amount of value in super niching. I would agree with you on, on all of those fronts. It's really important to focus. I, I think we had a conversation earlier about, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. The Death Star, you know, is this incredible, this terrible weapon which can destroy planets, but it principally does it with light, Right, but the idea is when you focus something, when you become very specific, then that thing has the penetrative energy to, you know, to cut a diamond, what have you. So, so yeah, I would say, absolutely say people need to really, really understand who it is that they sell to or they want to attract, and what it is that those people need that's going to make you their perfect partner. Right? Absolutely. And Alex, thank you for proving the point that all adults are children trapped in adult bodies. Well, absolutely. I don't know <laughs> this at the moment because it's audio, but in the background on the video, um, I've got three pictures on my wall. One's of Spider-Man, 
ones of Superman and ones of Batman, and and you know they're my my favourite superheroes. <laughs> we never we never grow up, and that's important as well, right? Because we are very emotional beings, and we never stop being emotional. We never, you know, we always carry the kid with us, and that child is, you know, very emotional, and we need to speak to that emotion. We must speak to that emotion if we're going to be influential. So it's really important. So I'd, I'd say the second question they should be asking is what problem do we solve, right? Because people know what service they provide or they know the product that they sell, but they very rarely take the time to look at what is the actual problem that the people that we work with are suffering from because that's the thing that they are typically buying against, right? That's the thing that's triggering the purchase at the end of the day but they're not and and that's what a business is there for the purpose of any business is to solve a problem right and so if you don't know what problem you solve you can't sell effectively because you can't have the right conversation with the people that you want to to persuade and influence into your business great point so what's really key here is to understand three fundamental but simple naive and steamingly cheekily offensive questions. Why, so what, who cares? Your job is to serve your customer. It's not to serve yourself. If you serve enough of your customers and you do a good enough job, you get your needs met. But if you're going out there and you want to talk about your ugly baby and talk about your ugly baby to strangers, you can guarantee that they will glaze over very quickly. If you can't enter their world, their story, the narrative that they're running inside their head and their internal dialogue, if you're not helping to identify the centers of dissatisfaction that are brewing and growing within their own business and their own environment, you're not going to tap into the point of difference that makes the difference. And if you don't understand why it matters to the individuals, then you're going to end up with a very generic story and people will be interested, which is an intellectual response. What you need to have them is believe. You need to have them committed. The angle I use on this is, so Alex, are you bacon or egg? And in fact, I had a rabbi wealth management client actually use this at the Jewish leadership. Awesome. (laughs) And and, uh, he closed 11 out of 12 of them. So that was really cool. I'm definitely bacon. I don't know. I just... (laughs) Pig is involved, the chicken is committed. And you need to move them from being just involved intellectually to being fully committed to making change. And this then raises another critical point. Whatever you sell, whether it's tangible or intangible, commodity or huge enterprise, complex or simple, every one of us sells only one thing, and that is change. Now... Mm. By nature, we are a conservative species with a small c. We do not like change. We all say we need change, but none of us want to actually do the damn thing. And as a result of that, you have to find that emotional trigger. uh, Because if you cannot find that emotional trigger, their default setting is to do what they've always done. It's to remain with the status quo because it's safer, it's easier. There was a meta-study of man's greatest fear, and they studied over 330 studies on man's fears. And the one thing, the the single biggest fear, is the fear of the future, because Mm -hmm. with it is the inevitability of change. 
And yeah. if you cannot tap into that, you're going to miss the mark. So, so I wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier, and you were talking about the way that you communicate on LinkedIn and the kind of content that you put out. And because and I want to highlight it because it's such a pure form of storytelling and, and it's something that people don't do. We tell a lot of stories, but I want to pick up on what you do because it's really important. It's a very powerful way of communicating. And it's something that I first saw when I was uh, doing Dale Carnegie. So I've, been, I've done a lot of different kinds of training and, and I, I've worked with Dale Carnegie for a couple of years. And what they, the way that they teach you to communicate your message is to, to tell a story, but to actually put yourself in the story and almost act out the beginning of the story. What people are watching is you involved in the conversation that you are having at the time of the story that you're telling. And you do exactly the same thing on LinkedIn, right? So you don't tell a story. You actually, it's almost like a script of the story that you're telling. So you're, you're showing the conversation that you had. And it's really, really powerful because, you know, if we think about programs like This Morning and Question Time and all that kind of stuff, the reason why they're really popular is people like earwigging in on conversations because they like to hear what's happening to other people, but they also like to look at it through the lens of themselves and who they are as people. And this idea of change is really important, isn't it? Because actually, in order to help people to change, you can't tell them to change. They need to come to that awareness themselves. And the best way of highlighting a need to change and helping people come to awareness of what they are doing that might not be working in their best interest is to show them somebody like them who's had a similar experience. And I think that's what's the power of what you do is by actually having that conversation in front of them through your content, they can see themselves in it and they can go, oh my God, that's me. I can't, yeah, you're right. I can't believe that I did that or that I'm doing that. Change is now necessary and, and I now know who I need to speak to in order you know, who I feel comfortable help me through that change. Because that's the other thing, isn't it? That they need to feel certain that the change is going to work and that the person they're going to work with is going to help them to achieve that. So I think that's why what you do generates the response it does is because it's just so powerful in helping people see the change that needs to be made. Again, this taps into a couple of other things. Our natural inclination is to look for what feels familiar. And uh, one of the best analogies that I use is the uh, scene in Finding Nemo, where they're swimming along, swimming along, and suddenly they hit the Gulf Stream and then whoosh. And that's really the power of entering into someone else's conversation. We teach a technique called the 30-second commercial. And the 30-second commercial talks only about the prospect issues. And it goes something along the lines of, Alex, typically, we help founders of PR companies who are frustrated that they're operating in a crowded competitive market where other PR companies are willing to drop their prices and they're winning business by buying it rather than selling at premium. Others tell us that they're anxious because they are finding it difficult to engage at senior levels within those, uh, their target market. And they're failing to create a point of difference in how they sell rather than what they sell. And a few are telling us that they're getting that engagement, but they're struggling with customers because the customers don't feel like 
they're getting the value that they were hoping for uh, because of mismatched expectations at the start of the sales process. I, I don't suppose any of those feel familiar, do they? Mm. And by doing that, you catapult yourself straight into the mind of the prospect. And the net result of that is that they then come back and they'll say, yeah, actually, that does sound like me. Or they'll say, no, it doesn't. The beauty of having a negative question at the end is you can say, you know, I didn't think they would be. Look, I'm going to hang up now. Before I do, do you mind if I just run a couple more things past you? And you have at least six of these things lined up. And, you know, they're baited hooks with a fat, juicy worm at the end of it that you're going to uh, attract the right kind of fish. Well, so, you know what it actually is, it's a micro-narrative, right? So yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, you're not say, talking about what you do or how you do it. You're saying, this is who we work with and this is why we work with them. And you're absolutely right. They go, yeah, that, hmm, that, that sounds like me. Perhaps yeah. we should be working together. Very good. Okay, and your third frequently unasked question. So uh, relating to all those things, what makes us our market's perfect partner, right? So what, why is, what is it that we know and what is it that we've done for other people like them that's going to make us attractive, right? Or, you know, because really, when you consider how much time people have, which isn't a lot, right? When you think about how busy people are, buyers, the people that you're selling to, Really, they don't have time to go out there and research the market, nor do they really want to. They don't really have the inclination to do so. Your job is to make them feel that they need to speak to you and nobody else. And so what is it about yourself that you can communicate to them that will make them focus on you and forget about the rest of the market? Now, I, I appreciate it depends on the size of the businesses that you're working with and, you know, this all kinds of things that get in the way of the sale from procurement departments and, and such. And, and you're, you're, sell you're, past them. Sell past, past them. them. Right, exactly. Give, give, give me a ring if you want to sell past procurement. That's absolutely right. I didn't, knew you were going to say that. So that's beautiful. <laughs> but really, your job as, as, as a business is to demonstrate to your market that they need not look to the right people, to not to everybody. As you say, you're not going to be able to do this for everybody, but to the right people, to the people in your sweet spot, to the people who have problems that you are absolutely perfectly placed to solve. Your job is to show them, show them, not tell them, but show them what it is that you're going to be able to do for them. And when you can show them that based on whether it's just helping changing their thoughts slightly or changing their behaviours or doing something that gets them a little bit of momentum or helps them see themselves in a way that they've never saw themselves before, then they're not going to talk to anybody else. They're just going to focus on you. But if you don't know what those things are, and I appreciate it's multifaceted, right? So sales is a multifaceted arena. But, you know, from, from my perspective, what we do for our clients is we shine a light. We, we kind of dig for the gold. We find the stuff that's really valuable and we project that stuff into the market. We really help them to show that they are absolutely the perfect partner for the market that they want to attract. This is a subject close to my heart. I don't want to be the biggest. I want to be the aspirational choice. If you're advising someone like me that overnight success after 35 years and got lots of scar tissue, loads of experience, how would you advise somebody to become or to position themselves as the aspirational choice? For me, aspiration is about understanding what it is that people essentially where they want to get to. And there's kind of 
there's all kinds of stuff wrapped up in that around there's emotional stuff uh, as well as kind of more physical goal orientated stuff. So how uh, do you get people to uh, develop clarity on that? So the question is, how do you make yourself an, an aspirational purchase, right? Yeah. So if you think about somebody like Apple, Apple makes beautiful equipment, but that's not necessarily what makes them aspirational. It's part of it. But what makes it aspirational is being part of that community, right? Being an Apple owner, an iPhone owner. And I think that that's what's interesting, you know, when we talk, think about B2B, can you create that kind of aspiration? And I think you can. And it has to do with people aspiring to be part of the Marcus Kalki community, right? So I want to be like the people that he works with, and I want to achieve what those people have achieved, right? So if it's me, I would see myself as aspirational because my clients typically get fantastic media coverage and they have people phoning them up saying, why is it that I, whenever I pick up a newspaper or a magazine or a trade periodical, you're always being talked about in it. And they'll say, well, because I'm working with Alex, right? And then I become aspirational because people think that's the level of results that, and that's the kind of profile that I want. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. The results and what other people say about you will make a huge difference. I mean, yeah. I think testimonials is a hugely underworked area because people will buy from people like themselves. Dan Kennedy said that nurses buy from nurses, firemen buy from firemen. And I think what's really important when you're developing your testimonial framework is to give people a framework and give them questions for them to answer. And those questions are, who are you and who do you serve? What kind of problem did you have that caused you to get in touch with me in the first place and uh, to uh, have me help you? What were your initial reservations? What results did you achieve with my help? What surprised you? Was it fun? Would you recommend me and why? And I always provide that template to clients when I'm asking them for a testimonial. And that then results in a narrative because it tells a story. And right. keeps coming back to story. So I was going to say exactly that. A good testimonial is another micro-narrative. Yeah. It's a mini story about you. And I think, so you've absolutely nailed it, nailed it there, right? So aspiration is all about what other people are saying about you. Again, I think this takes us into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you've got survival, security, belonging. And that's really where the testimonials play. Because the testimonials play into, I want to be part of that. I want some of what they've got. And then that moves you into self-esteem and then into self-actualization. So meeting your potential. And certainly for me, I think the, the most satisfying part of my work is where the clients I work with achieve what they're capable of rather than what they think is possible. Right. And, and to get the delta between those two is normally massive Huge. I mean, I I posted yesterday about a client of mine. I've been working with him just before Christmas. And he came to me tracking at 25% of target. Conversation we had day before yesterday was he's now 112% of target. His pipeline is absolutely uh, rock solid. Uh, His sales cycles are down to about a third of the length that uh, that they usually were. He's converting roughly 80% that get to final stage instead of one in eight. And that, to me, is so much more compelling 
And that's the kind of story I want people to tell on my behalf so I don't have to. And that's where testimonials come in. And I think this is where PR can really play its part. But I'm curious to take this just a little bit deeper, which is in terms of helping them get that narrative clear in their head. Because at the top of the interview, we were talking about the kind of questions people ask instead of the ones they should. And very often, they're not asking the question about, well, how can I get out of my own way? What is it that we are doing that's limiting our success? And I think that's really where story can come into its own as well. Because by telling it through a third party, it's not being too salesy. It's not about you. So you're not creating resistance because certainly in the UK, uh, we have a habit of bringing people uh, back down to where they belong, bring them back down to earth. But if a third party says it, um, then they can't knock you. And that's, again, another really important part of uh, the whole PR piece, which is that if you can borrow the credibility of the client and the editorial staff, and the publisher, then it means that it's not you beating your chest about yourself. Couldn't agree more. So that you know, it's a hundred percent right. And and I think the key question, it's, and it's all about asking the right questions, right? So you you ask the right questions, you get good answers, and you get the information you need. One of the most important questions that's probably not asked enough is why, right? So what did you need, and why was it important? Yeah. What was getting in the way of you getting what you wanted? And what you know, and what was the impact of that? And it's 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 that kind of stuff. It's that understanding that's going to really give you a very clear view of the problems that you solve and the people that you help them, and and how much you help them. It's interesting. The original pain funnel questions that Sandler developed were: What's the biggest problem that you face? What is it about that problem you find the most difficult? What keeps you from your intended outcome? What does the obstacle do to prevent you from achieving your intended outcome? How? And what do you do today? And what do you want to do about it? And in fact, all of those are why questions. They are. Absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. And actually what that does is, and then you, I mean, we know this because it's it's at the heart of what you do. You're digging, right? Because you don't want to deal with the superficial. You don't want to deal with, you know, symptoms the symptom of what's going on you want to find out what's really going on at the heart of the issue and the impact of it I, I talk about impact a lot more these days impact is so important it's absolutely key you don't just want to know the impact of what you did you want to find out what's the impact of not having done it absolutely. so what would have happened if you'd carried on the way that you were and that problem had stayed in place you know and then, you know, you look at the difference between the impact you've created and what could have happened, and then it's a no-brainer. Another very useful exercise I use with my clients is that I have them write out the default future. Ten years from now, if you carry on doing what you're doing, where will you live? Who will you be stuck with? Uh, what kind of life will you have? And pull pictures uh, off the internet of, um, you know, the shithole that you'd live in, amputated legs. An anti-dream board. Uh, An anti-dream board. And let that percolate for three or four weeks and really build it up and then write your ideal future. And that is your aspirational future. Mm. Now, what's really interesting is by juxtaposing those two, you tap into an individual's personal motivation to change. And it's one of the 
quickest ways of creating a lifetime behavioral change when you tap into someone's motivation, the away from and the towards. Yeah. And then you develop a plan and a behavioral cookbook uh, in order to help you achieve those objectives. And the behavior is the only thing you can control. And the beauty is with a cookbook, you know that if you have five unique effective conversations a day, that's 25 a week, chances are you're going to end up on seven meetings with prospects who have problems that you can genuinely fix. Of those, three will get to um, the final stage and you'll close two. So you get two new customers a week if you follow that one behavior. Right. Yeah, incredibly powerful. It is. Um, and that's, so that's something else that I learned from you. It's the behavior that matters. That's the thing that you've got to focus in on you know not not the outcome what is it that you need to do to get there and then do that thing consistently that then brings us to the the final point on this i think which is that you should never be attached to the outcome you focus on doing an excellent job in the present moment and the moment you take your eye off that ball then it's like playing golf and worrying about the last shot or the next shot you're going to end up in the trees the pond the sand the woods uh, which is often where I do, which is slightly depressing. But it's really important to be fully present. And that's why when you set time aside in your diary for specific behavioral activities and you track the leading indicators, the yeah. things that tell you in advance whether you're going to achieve your goal or not. Yeah. And so often I see organizations and managers tracking everything or tracking lag indicators, which bring no value. By the time the numbers like revenue, number of dials, profit, number of proposals, number of demonstrations, number of presentations comes in, it's already too late because they, those don't really move the needle to the right. What really matters is finding those leading indicators in your business that you can control and you can execute. And if you do that consistently, and it's about consistency, about creating the habit, then you can control the outcome. 100% agree. And we, we see very similar in, in public relations where, you know, a lot of PR is all about, well, how do we generate the coverage? What do we need to say to get into this magazine? And actually, that that's not a way to start any kind of PR campaign, because actually, the coverage is a byproduct of what's being done, right? Any good PR agency worth its salt is going to get you coverage. So you don't need to worry about the, that outcome. What you need to worry about is who is it that you want to reach and what do you need to say to them in order to attract them and influence them, right? And then it's down to the PR company to then take that material and you use their, what, their, their experience and expertise to get the right kind of coverage in the right kind of places that's going to get to the right kind of people. 100%. And that's why we have created a very specific process for the work that we do, because we know we need to go through these behaviours in order to get to the, the right end results. And of course, the more that you do that, it becomes muscle memory, it becomes habit, and you just find that's why your strike rate goes up is because you become better at it. You're just focusing on the right things. You're stripping away all the fats. You're becoming lean and your process delivers the result faster uh, than anybody else. And that, I mean, that's something else that we, we we work with with our clients is we say, look, what is it that you know that your market doesn't, that they need to know? What is it that you can tell them that's unique to you, that's highly valuable, that they're going to look at and go, wow, we don't need to worry about anybody else. This is the guy. This is the guy we need to work with because of what they've just told us, the value that they've just brought to us. Exactly. So let me ask you this. What 
are you reading, listening to, watching, or what would you recommend people read, listen to, or watch in terms of great content, books, podcasts, videos? Who's producing great material to really develop their story, develop their position, and develop PR? I think some of the best kind of content challenges people's beliefs, Uh right? Typically, we are engaged in behaviors that are a product of what we believe. And some, a lot of the time, those beliefs are, they're wrong or they're, they're not optimal, right? So they lead to behaviors that aren't optimal, right? So the best, the, the best content is that which challenges those beliefs and helps people come to a better conclusion, right? And when they come to a better conclusion, then typically their behaviors follow suit, right? One of my favorite podcasts is the Freakonomics podcast, Freakonomics yeah. Radio. Right. Now, so that that brilliant is, book. is a brilliant book, but an amazing podcast. And and actually, you know, we're doing a podcast this morning. I highly, I would urge any business to to start a podcast because actually, you know, these are, these are the conversations. It's through these conversations that you demonstrate your value and you demonstrate your experience and your expertise. And if you want to hear you know, kind of the best, the very best podcast and Free Economics Radio is so beautifully put together. I mean, I'm sure that there's a fair amount of money that goes behind it, but it is absolutely beautifully put together. And, you know, it's about the hidden side of everything. So it's really about helping you to understand the world around you. We take the world at face value. And actually what Free Economics does is it helps you to uncover what's really going on. It helps you understand the stuff that you think you knew that was actually wrong and puts you right. So I, I would highly recommend the Free Economics podcast. So I'm currently reading Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Now, I've never read any of Gladwell's stuff. He's sensational. And I think one thing that I'd say about Malcolm in, the, in his style, in the way that he creates, in the way that he writes, is that he's always got really interesting principles that he wants to communicate. But if you listen to his books or you read his books, what you'll see and what you'll realize is that before he starts explaining anything, he always tells a story. Always, always, always. And that story is always captivating, you know, helps him to explain the principle that he's going to share with you. So that's, that's also... Really good point. So the book I'm reading, Blink, is phenomenal. And it's all about the, the idea that as humans, what we do is we make judgments very, very quickly. So, you know, in the blink of an eye, we will have made a judgment on whether something is right for us or wrong for us or is something of interest. And it's really important for today, right? So I, I can't remember what he, what he actually calls it. But, but this idea that if you are not creating content that captures the imagination immediately, if your website is full of droning copy that just talks about the technicality of your widget, If all you're doing is telling stories about yourself, you are not going to capture the imagination quickly enough of your audience. You know, we see... Like going on a date and someone talking about themselves. Right, right. So that whole idea that the best conversation is the one where the other person's done all the talking they'll be like, oh my God, I had a great conversation with, with Marcus the other day. We, you know, we talked about so much stuff and actually what's happened is that they've done all the talking and that's why they've enjoyed the conversation. So, you know, it's, and you always talk about that in the sale, don't you? That, that as, as salespeople, we should be doing the smallest amount of talking and we should be doing, you know, doing everything we can to get our prospects to do talking. Well, 
On that note, then, in terms of question everything, the FS.blog, Farnham Street blog, the authors or the producers of that have developed a book called Great Mental Models, and that's really worth a read. So if you get a chance to have a peek at that, then I'd strongly recommend it. It's on Audible and uh, a fascinating read. And I'm just trying to find the uh, author's name for you. I'll put it on the body copy for the material. Okay, thanks for that. So tell me this then. You've now got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Alex, age 23. What advice would you give him to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and (laughs) self-sabotage? It's such a good question. I've always struggled with, this is going to sound really weird. I've always struggled with human interaction, right? So I, um, <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, people always think, absolutely, what are you talking about? But um, I'm an identical twin. And when you have somebody who's really, really close, right? So when, when you know, as a, brothers and sisters, they have close relationships. With twins, we have this very, very close relationship. And so we, my brother and I, we didn't really need social interaction when we were, we were very young and growing up because, you know, we had each other and that's, that, was, that was all that was necessary at the time. And we very shy, very, very shy and never really went out very much and socialised and that kind of stuff. So actually when I did start going out, I didn't really know what to do. And also always so very worried about what people thought of me and, and, you know, trying to strike up conversations, finding it very, very difficult. So what I would do, I would say to my my 23-year-old self, don't worry about what everybody else thinks of you. Stop thinking about everybody else. You know, be in the present moment. Go out there and just talk to people. Have good conversations. Ask good questions. So, yeah, I would say that's always held me back is worrying about am I good enough, what people think of me. All that's going to do is self-sabotage your own future. It's... Shouldn't worry about that sort of stuff. That, that is one of the, probably the most common struggle that people have. The I'm not worthy script. I'm, yeah. Am I enough? I'm not enough. That noise in their head. And the reality is that you are. The, the problem is that people don't understand the difference between identity, who you are, and role, what you do. And often they see their poor role performance as being an impact or having an impact on their identity. And so we call this role bleed. And as a result of that, uh, a bad day at work or screwing up a conversation, they suddenly run this narrative and they have this catastrophizing script that's very critical parent, very judgmental. And if you've grown up in an environment where, where you had a critical parent, then you're probably borrowing their voice and it's giving you a hard time. The reality is your history does not have to write your future. You make choices about how you feel about yourself. And one of the big challenges is that you get reflected back what you project out and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Alex's advice is very, very sound. Let go of that baggage. Let go of that opinion and just go in and be authentically yourself and worry not about what other people think. Just be fully present, pay attention to them. And miraculously, if you pay attention to them, they'll find you interesting. Next question then, and this is the, this is the doozy question. What are you personally struggling with in your business? 
I think as business people, we find it very difficult to eat our own dog food. So to eat our own lunch. And it's been a challenge. It certainly is is self-promotion. And that part of that is rolled up in what we were just talking about. So yesterday, I was, I think I mentioned, did a workshop in front of 30 business owners. And, you know, the just so much nerves going into that situation. And I'm working with a fabulous guy at the moment called uh, Martin Lucas, who, who's a, a psychological mathematician. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant. And what he said to me before I went on, he was like, just let Alex be Alex. That really helped. But yeah, I think, you know, I've always struggled a little bit with self-promotion, putting myself out there, really kind of doing the stuff that I'm telling my clients to do. But I would say that I'm getting so much better at it. I'm consistently out there on LinkedIn. And it's amazing how powerful LinkedIn it can be when, when you use it properly. And I'm getting up on stages and I'm doing a lot more uh, workshops and doing presentations. And, and actually what you realize is the more that you do of this stuff, not just the more comfortable you become doing it, but the more you enjoy it, you know, the more you want to do it. So yeah, I'd say that's been the perennial challenge uh, and the way that I'm confronting it is just to do the stuff that scares me the most you know what is it that's going to this morning doing this with you you know what what is it today that I'm going to do that's going to push me out of my comfort zone and put me out there and uh, today it's talking to you (laughs) I hope I'm not that well let me ask you this do you schedule self-promotion time in your diary on a regular basis Yes. Yeah, so what I what I do is, and again, this is something that I, I learned from you, and I can't remember what the actual phrase is. So please remind me; it'd be awesome. But I've got an accountability partner yeah. who holds me to account on these things, and so we. I have got uh, two. I have to do two LinkedIn posts a week, and failure to do so comes up with a quite a large financial penalty. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what's the freeze i can't remember what the it's, tra- it's trap selling right you think you so, set yourself a trap and you, know, you, you say have to do it something without accountability is oh, i can't remember what it is but yeah in order to create a habit you've got to do the thing and you've got to do it consistently but typically when it's a habit that you don't necessarily want to do then you need something you know a driving force behind you and and the fear of having to pay my accountability partner a few hundred pounds if I don't do what I'm supposed to do is enough to uh, to do that and it's got to be painful so um, definitely I, I schedule time in and I and you can make damn sure that that those posts go out every week on the on, on the time they're supposed to You've tapped into a couple of things first of all if you're waiting for your attitude to be right before you do the behavior you're going to be waiting for a very cold day in hell. So behavior drives attitude, not the other way around. If you do the behavior, the attitude will catch up. And the other thing is accountability without consequence. Uh, That's to mean that what people will do is they'll take the easy route. And where most of the human race plays is they sacrifice the long-term upside for the short-term immediate gratification of staying comfortable, not taking a risk, not putting themselves into that uh, difficult place. And Alex has made a really vitally important point here, which is that you need to put yourself into a place of discomfort if you're going to grow and stretch. One of my favorite uh, proverbs is, if you're green, you grow. If you're ripe, you rot. And 
you see a lot of people who are caught in a rut. And my favorite definition of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. And so many people end up stuck in a rut and then they find themselves in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s with a life of regret because they didn't do the things that they should have done or could have done. And you're asking yourself a question on a regular basis, which is what can I do today, now, immediately, in order to? And that's really important as well. It's a process called affirmation. I've always found affirmations saying to myself that it's the 16th of September 2020 and I'm nine stone 10, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'm smoke-free. And a little voice in my head says, no, you're not, you fat bastard. On the other hand, if I ask myself the question, what can I do today in order to lose half a pound? Or what can I do today to attract this prospect? What can I do immediately? And then I can sleep on that even. So I ask those questions at night and then I allow my unconscious mind to come up with solutions. And every day, a question I ask myself, because I'm intrinsically lazy, I've taken doing sod all to an art form. And the question I ask is, what can I do to make my life simpler or easier? I want to find a way to do less but better on purpose and get more. So, you know, we, we have a motto in our business, which is double the money for half the work. And I want to charge premiums so I can spend more time with my clients, servicing them and serving them. And it's really key that you have that laser focus on asking yourself better questions to get better answers. And this is where I think a lot of people come unstuck. I agree with you. And and, and something I'd add to that is measure everything, right? So Measure the right things. Well, yeah. So, but in terms of the activity that you're doing, we measure the, the behaviors that you're doing. If you want to do, get more results for less, I do a fair amount of coaching as well. And a lot of the people I'm working with are, you know, they're kind of, they do a lot of networking, right? They're always out there meeting people. No, they, they, do, they do a bad substitute for a poor social life. Right. <laughs> they're out there, they're meeting people, they're doing what they think they need to do. And one thing that we put in place is a network diary so they can actually measure what the value of those meetings. So they can say to themselves, you know, first of all, who is it that I'm meeting that's actually making the most difference to me and my business? And what is it that I'm going to do next with them to make sure that we carry on and that that we get to where we need to get to? And it's amazing how often you find that all the 90% of the meetings they're having are a complete waste of time. Absolutely. Uh, Their biggest expense is gin and tonic and cappuccinos. Right. But, you know, they're having a good time. So, you know, who cares? Absolutely. Cool. Alex, thank you so much. This has been really good fun and very interesting. How can people get hold of you? So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can come over to the website, have a look at 9millimeterpr.com or even uh, look for Find Your Sales Sweet Spot online and you'll you'll find us there as well fabulous thanks very much for being such a great guest thank you for having me it's been fantastic pleasure so this is marcus kauke signing off from the inquisitor podcast once again if you believe that you'd make a great guest or there's someone that you would really like me to interview then please contact me via direct message on linkedin or email me at mcauchi at sandler.com Or if you fancy coming along to one of my miserable classes where I will rip the scales from your eyes and take away your right to any excuses, then drop me a message on LinkedIn with Crash a Class 
as the headline. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Encoaster podcast. Happy selling. Bye-bye.